Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today we'll be talking about adult themes, including intimate partner violence. The show is not appropriate for young listeners and for those who may find the topic disturbing. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was found guilty in February 2020 of a criminal sexual act and rape in the third degree, some of the multiple women who came forward alleging he sexually harassed and assaulted them over decades tweeted the reaction, some proclaiming justice had been served. But a recent New Yorker article called attention to something Tarana Burke shared after Weinstein's conviction in 2020. Burke is the founder of the Me Too movement. She said, quote, though today a man has been found guilty, we have to wonder whether anyone will care about the rest of us tomorrow. This is why we say Me Too. Today, where we live, we talk about how the legal system and social media treat women who speak out and the setback to the Me Too movement. This after the culmination of a defamation trial between actors and former spouses Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, a civil, not criminal case broadcast on TV and analyzed in graphic and distasteful ways on social media. Coming up later, we also look at data on the creation of new fake social media accounts spreading disinformation during this trial and how this trend will spill over to other aspects of civil society. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're starting our conversation today um, by hearing from a survivor of intimate partner violence, and we're not identifying her because of safety reasons. She joins us now on the phone. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're going to be talking about this uh, defamation trial and uh, the way um, the reactions to it, um, the way people from celebrities to regular folks responded to the details of the relationship between these former spouses and celebrities, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, and also the comments on social media, and how this is a larger commentary on how women who are survivors of abuse are viewed in our society. Now, I introduced you as a survivor. I understand you ended up leaving your abusive spouse. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was with my abuser, you know, for seven years, and it was all forms of abuse. It was physical, mental, emotional, sexual, financial, all of it. Um, and then really my family saw it all along. Um, but I was so stubborn and so just scared really to admit that I was wrong and that admit that I was in an abusive relationship. Um, I spent about a year preparing myself starting in 2020 to gain that mental strength back to take my power back from the situation and to finally leave. And when I did, um, I had a garbage bag of clothes for myself and my two sons 
and I went to a national domestic or a domestic abuse shelter um, and stayed there for two months. And it was it was very scary, really. It was empowering to be able to leave and say, I'm finally had enough. Um, but really coming forward, it was, it was scary. The act of leaving was scary. And we know from uh, previous conversations with experts on intimate partner violence, that act of leaving can be the most dangerous time in a woman's life. Absolutely. Um, and that's why when I did it, I I honestly waited until he fell asleep. I had it all planned out to where my kids were with um, their grandma at the time. And I made sure that I had it all set up so that if anything were to happen, I would still have people that knew about it, um, that I was planning on leaving, and that I would do it in the safest way for myself and my children. So you mentioned you spent about two months in this shelter. Can you describe your experience going to court? So going to the shelter, I mean, it was it was scary because it was unknown, but I was also looking forward to the next chapter of my life, of the, the healing chapter of my life, of being able to move forward and move on from what was happening. Um, the women at the shelter were just absolutely incredible. They helped me every step of the way. I was able to obtain a restraining order. Um, I was able to file for my divorce. I was able to um, take the time that I needed to heal myself and get that process started so that I was able to successfully transition into my own apartment and really living my life again. And so in your situation, the legal system worked as it should? It did. Um, the only thing that I didn't like was, you know, when you get a restraining order, you still have to see the person in court. Um, that was really the one thing that I didn't like about it. Um, I understand that it has to be done at court, but I think that there needs to be a way where it's done where you don't actually have to see the person that you're asking for the restraining order against because that could stop people from pursuing it. You know, getting back to the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial, I wanted to read a quote from the attorney for Amber Heard, uh, Benjamin Rottenborn. In his closing arguments, he described a series of catch-22s that often ensnare women who alleged uh, that they are uh, victims of domestic violence. And I want to quote him here. He said, if you didn't take pictures, it didn't happen. If you did take pictures, they're fake. If you didn't tell your friends, you're lying. And if you did tell your friends, they're part of the hoax. If you didn't seek medical treatment, you weren't injured. If you did seek medical treatment, you're crazy. As a survivor, how do you respond to what he shared? I think it's, it's pretty accurate. Um, in these types of situations, everybody expects people to, you know, react in a certain way or act in a certain way. For me, there was a lot of emotionless. Um, I've noticed, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to and even just from my own situation, that emotion goes away because you're just trying to survive through the day or the hour or the week or whatever it is, and that emotion goes away. And you have that shame so you don't talk to your friends 
but then once you do, you're attention-seeking. So I definitely do agree that it's kind of a catch-22 no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And somebody's always going to have something to say about it, but what it, what it comes down to is you have to do what's right for you. And so for me, I, I really did. I shut off pretty much every emotion that I had because I was just trying to survive. So I feel like a lot of people would have looked at me and been like, oh, you, you know, you're probably making this up or, you know, you're not even, it's not even affecting you in the way that you are saying and your words aren't matching your, your actions or the emotion that you're portraying. But in all reality, it can't because if you let it show in those situations, then you may not make it to the next day, mentally even. You're hearing a a survivor of intimate partner violence here on where we live. We're not identifying her because of safety concerns. Uh, She was able to leave her abusive husband. And we're talking with her uh, in the context of this Amber Heard, Johnny Depp defamation trial uh, with the way uh, people responded uh, during this trial, with the outcome of the trial, how this will impact survivors if they speak out alleging abuse. Uh, I understand you also experienced online disinformation and harassment by your ex-husband. The vitriol uh, online towards Amber Heard is not fit to repeat on this show, uh, but I understand your ex used online forums to also attack you. Could you, do, could you tell us more? Yes. So um, there was a Reddit page created um, under, it was under my name and it was based out of my hometown um, that Basically what it was is they took pictures of me and a friend of mine and myself and my sister and they posted them to Reddit. And then on other posts, it would be pictures from pornographic websites and it was just very lewd things. And I think it was really just trying to attack me in a way, um, just to be one of those, you know, smear campaign type of things. And how did that impact you? Um, I tried my best not to let it affect me just because I knew that it was, you know, ridiculous. And my sister was the one that brought it to my attention um, because of someone back in my hometown found it. And so I tried to, you know, try to see if there was a way for me to get it shut down. Unfortunately, there wasn't. Um, But I know that a lot of people like reported the page and things like that. And so it did kind of just go away. But mentally, it was just, what if somebody saw this and believed that it was me? And it was, it was a stress in that time. But, you know, I, I did my best to not let it affect me. I wanted to get another perspective in the conversation. Joining us now on Zoom is Megan Scanlon, who is the CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted you to respond uh, to our survivor's story here. And also, you know, when we think about the misogyny that was on display during coverage of this trial, the social media comments, and how um, women are discredited when they come forward. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the story that you just heard is, is one that is not, unfortunately, not uncommon um, in terms of the abuser or offender being able to assert power and control, not just 
over the relationship, but through systems and through social media, um, and certainly sometimes through the court system. And I think one of the biggest things that we saw in this court case was um, gaslighting, which I, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but essentially um, it's an individual that's able to manipulate others and specifically systems, whether it be the court or law enforcement or other systems into essentially misidentifying a victim as the offender and then uh, you know the offender as the victim. And I think we saw that very much um, in this court case, but also we see that um, daily. And certainly um, part of the story you heard earlier in terms of the manipulation over social media and other relationships in her life um, certainly had had that element to it. It's another uh, way that women are uh, treated in the legal system when they come forward with allegations of abuse. Uh, are they portrayed as being mentally ill, Megan? Sometimes. I mean, we are lucky in the state of Connecticut that we do have, um, we throughout our system, our domestic violence system, we have court advocates in both family, civil and criminal that work with victims in order to advocate on their behalf. So we're lucky in that way that we've found a mechanism in order to minimize that. Um, but it certainly happens um, in, in, in various court situations, depending on the case. Uh, and we work very hard to minimize that impact uh, here in Connecticut. So the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, I understand, has a representative at the courts. And you also work with to train police departments. So tell us you know, what prompted that and why this is so necessary, Megan. Well, I think what prompted that is, is some of what uh, everybody saw play out in, in this Johnny Depp, Amanda Heard case is that the systems are not necessarily set up to be the most inviting or um, the most uh, empathetic in terms of victim stories. So we had to do a lot of training and education and collaboration um, with the various systems in order to uh, get to where we are with um, being able to teach and advocate a victim's perspective, understanding that everybody's situation is unique and different, that everyone is going to present their trauma differently. I mean, you heard one, uh, you know, one example of sort of, you know, sort of shutting off emotion here, um, but we certainly have others who who don't react that way. Um, so it's it's really working within the systems in order to educate, train, and collaborate so that victims do still feel empowered to come forward and share their stories because no one, especially women, don't de deserve to live in fear. Um, and we wanna make that clear, at least here in the state of Connecticut. You know, going back to this defamation trial between Heard and Depp, uh, a marriage counselor in court used this term mutual abuse. Uh, Johnny Depp uh, also attempted to sue for defamation in uh, a British tabloid in 2020. He actually lost where the judge there found he did physically abuse his ex-wife at least 12 times. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, this term mutual abuse. And is that common in these types of, of um legal uh, procedures uh, that, you know, this is how uh, the ex-spouses or former partners are portrayed? So, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe and I don't think we as a coalition sub subscribe to this sort of mutual abuse. I think we've done so much work, especially with law enforcement and others to even just help them identify who the 
who the aggressor um, is in a situation. And I think it really comes back to the power and con control dynamic. So there's always one person that has the ability to exert more power and control in a situation. And I think that is something that maybe was missed here in this particular case. And I hope that it does not uh, continue to be missed in other cases. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, we don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think there is trauma that people um, endure and I think they react in very different ways to trauma, but I think you really have to go back to the ultimate, um, you know, a sort of foundation of domestic abuse is this power and control dynamic and who is the one that has more power and control, who is able to exert it um, more frequently and more often in order to continue to keep that individual um, from, you know, pursuing their own lives from being not living in fear. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't know the therapist, but um, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier I, I posed the question of how this defamation trial will impact survivors um, if uh, they do come forward and speak out and allege abuse. This is a question a lot of people are asking in, in the, uh, the wake of this particular uh, highly publicized uh, court case. Uh, can you talk about, I understand there are something called anti-SLAP laws, the acronym S-L-A-A-P, and Connecticut has one, and, and how that may uh, combat that fear. Yeah, so it's essentially a law that I don't think Virginia had um, where somebody could come forward um, and share information and not necessarily be, be penalized in that way. Um, so I think we're lucky here that we do have some of those protections in place. Um, but I think the bigger issue in this case was just the biases in the conversation um, and maybe especially misinformation on social media um, and other platforms. And I think that's where we just have a lot more work to do around educating the general public around domestic violence. It's actually a public health crisis for women. One in four women will be impacted in their lifetime, one in seven men. That's for women more than breast cancer and diabetes combined. Um, so I think there's a lot more work to do around how do we educate individuals around this issue that it's much more complex than um, than individuals think uh, and everyone is going to react in a different way. So I think the greater thing is somehow we have to combat some of that misinformation and change our societal response to this issue. Um, some of the language and the text messages that were read in court I mean, I had a visceral reaction to, and it's um, sort of disturbing that others didn't um, around the country. Um, and so I think that that's a problem and we need to continue to work on that and, and um, you know, work with our partners in order to, to change that dynamic. And we'll be talking about that coming up here on Where We Live, but I want to thank Megan Scanlon for joining us, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And for those that are listening, that 24-7 hotline, um, if you are or you know someone uh, that is experiencing this, you can call or text 888-774-2900. Megan, thank you for your time. Thank you.
And I also want to take time to thank uh, a Connecticut uh, survivor of intimate partner violence who joined us today. Thank you for telling us your story. Thank you so much for having me. So coming up, we're going to talk about how the creation of new fake social media accounts spread disinformation in this trial and how this trend will spill over to other aspects of civil society. You can join us too. find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about some adult themes, including intimate partner violence. This show is not appropriate for young listeners and for those who find the, do- the topic disturbing. Now, earlier we talked about how the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial reinforces the way our society responds to women who come forward to talk about the abuse they've experienced and how the outcome of this trial may impact survivors of abuse. Another unsettling part of the response to this uh, six-week televised trial was what was shared online. The BBC quoted an Israeli firm that tracks online disinformation. That firm found that in this Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial, 11% of conversation was driven by fake accounts. Now, 11% of conversations by fake accounts is usually seen around big events like elections. For more perspective, joining us now on Zoom is Sri Srinivasan, social and digital expert at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Sri, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So when we talk about the the disturbing amount of fake accounts uh, that uh, were spreading disinformation around this trial, you know, how do you respond and what do we know about who or what is behind these fake accounts? Well, we are living in a misinformation and disinformation pandemic, uh, along with the actual pandemic that's going on. And we are seeing that technology and social media in particular are being deployed as tools to spread misinformation, disinformation at record levels. In this particular case with this trial, they saw it as a chance to affect conversations and to drive an agenda 
that includes, among other things, misogyny and anger at a celebrity who they believe is being treated unfairly. And of course, Amber Heard is also a celebrity, but not, nowhere in the same realm as Johnny Depp. And that was part of the story as well. Uh, speaking to that point, I, uh, the BBC uh, highlighted that the number of views of videos on TikTok with the hashtag justice for Johnny Depp uh, was about 18 billion, 18 billion, Shree. <laughs> and that tells you everything you need to know that the this was a disproportionate uh, way of looking at the conversation going online. And for some of us old enough to remember the OJ trial, uh, the OJ Simpson trial back in 95, uh, things have changed so much since then. And this is all part of how things are communicated now. Like you might wonder, as, as many people did at the beginning of the pandemic, why was there so much anti-mask information or how much of this was a hoax about the pandemic? A lot of those are paralleled in this story as well. Earlier, when you mentioned they, uh, the people that are behind these fake accounts, what do we know about them, if at all? Yeah, so I, I do want to talk about the fake accounts, and we also mm -hmm. should make sure we talk about the real accounts that mm -hmm. also amplified and were bad actors, so to speak, in this, uh, in this whole saga. But to the point about the fake accounts, uh, there are bot farms and... Uh, various types of technology that allow people to create instant accounts that then just pump out information that is incorrect, uh, disingenuous to outright lies. And the way technology works is that people respond to those. Why? Because they're more dramatic, because they're more direct, because they appeal to our baser instincts. And all of that uh, plays into what's happening. We've also seen over the course of the six-week trial that one thing that really mattered was that this was live on the internet for anybody to watch. That meant that there was an unlimited supply of video that could be repurposed. And that makes a big difference in spreading information because you need kind of a, the, the, the video itself, the trial itself was the oxygen for the all this information and uh, disinformation and misinformation so when we let's talk about the bad actors that you mentioned the, the the ordinary people along with a few celebrities i understand even brands like duolingo all going to social media to either mock or undermine heard what was your reaction it was very very disappointing but not a surprise uh, because we know that whenever there's something that is uh, that uh, allegedly or seems to pit a man versus a woman online, everything will be against the against the woman uh, or a disproportionate amount versus the man. That's been true with politics. It's been uh, true with uh, sports stories where men and women are involved. Uh, we we've seen this in equal pay initiatives. Uh, just yesterday, I was—I I read a headline that said that the uh, the fight song of Notre Dame University is going to include the words "sons" and "daughters" for the first time, even though women have been admitted for 50 years to Notre Dame. 
So I said, I bet this is going to have lots of people are going to be upset about this. Not just alumni, but the internet's going to be upset about this. And sure enough, right under that very tweet I was reading was all kinds of angry uh, uh, backlash type messages. So this is the kind of thing that we, we, we're seeing in our culture, and it's so disturbing. You mentioned the the OJ trial. I am uh, old enough to remember that. I remember watching some of it. Um, and when we think about, you know, traditionally when these kinds of um, higher profile trials were uh, covered, I mean, it was through the lens of journalism organizations and news organizations. And now we have social media where just about anybody can um you know, to respond, react, uh, and again, share that disinformation tree that, that you mentioned, uh, you know, as, as someone uh, who is with a journalism school at Arizona State University, you know, how troubling is this? Well, I look at this even with the namesake of the school I'm part of, Walter Cronkite, who was a great journalist. Uh, he would say at the end of his newscasts that were watched by millions of people, he would say, and that's the way it is. And people had to just accept it or yell at the TV or if they didn't like what they saw, you know, just turn to the person with them or next day at the water cooler, say something. And while that was true in, you know, we think of the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was also true through through the 90s into the 2000s. And now if you're unhappy with something uh, that you see online, you can actually feel empowered to do something about it to participate, to be part of the conversation. And a stray comment by somebody can be amplified and weaponized so quickly. And that's part of the problem we're seeing as well. Mm. Yeah, with the, the Heard uh, Depp uh, defamation trial, you know, the broad consensus that emerged online is that she was lying, despite that there was evidence on the contrary. And all someone has to do is uh, run with that lie and it, it is amplified. And that's what's so disturbing. Yeah, and you're also seeing that uh, as the trial went on, right, six weeks is a long time, folks saw the traction that this story was getting online. Creators, people who like making videos about other things, obviously, started jumping on this because they knew it would attract eyeballs, and eyeballs means money, right? So that's how they uh, added to this throughout. So it wasn't that everybody started out uh, being as toxic as they ended up being. But that's how the conversation went. That arc was uh, was all towards toxicity. So, what's the fix, Sri? When we think about how the U.S. Uh, our lawmakers uh, consider uh, whether or not to regulate social media, uh, European countries they take a different tact. Can you talk about that? Yeah, European countries are very much fixed on you know making sure that. They, the privacy is, is preserved, uh, that there is some regulation of the Internet. But what we've learned over the 30 years of the Internet, that it's very hard to regulate, it's hard to control. And there will always be tools and technology that will go to the bottom and make things worse. And the tech companies also have a role to play in this, right? If you think about how our phones are programmed, with their notifications to appeal to our brains to pick up the phone and get engaged and look at the content. Like we, we see this all the time that on Facebook, the content that does best 
is content that is angry, that uh, uh, content that is the most hate-filled will have the most reaction to it because that's how human beings are and the machines make it worse. You're hearing Sri Srinivasan here on Where We Live, a social and digital expert at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. He's going to stay with us after the break. We're also going to hear from a professor of anthropology at Quinnipiac about how society views gender violence. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before we get to that, uh, just a few days left to support Connecticut Public during our short end of the fiscal year membership campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Support comes from Bouvier Insurance, family-owned and operated since 1959, and committed to understanding what matters most to their clients. Local offices throughout Connecticut and Rhode Island. Bouvier Insurance. Insure like family. Beinsurance.com. Many Silicon Valley companies want their software engineers to live for their jobs, to believe the work is so important they can find a kind of transcendence. The workplace was the last meaningful institution standing. It was the institution that offered the best means for meaning, identity, belonging, and purpose. But is the office really the place to find a life's worth of fulfillment? That's on the next On Point. Listen this morning at 10. Science Friday fans, join the Cephalopod Week celebration June 10th at Mystic Aquarium. It's a date night deep dive into the fascinating world of undersea creatures like squid and cuttlefish. Enjoy short films, games, and refreshments. You may even meet an octopus teacher of your own. Co-presented with Connecticut Public. Visit ctpublic.org events for more info. Sponsored by Save the Sound. In New England, the weather is always changing. Listen for weather forecasts from meteorologist Garrett Argianis during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Support comes from Mystic Seaport Museum and Duncaster, a life care retirement community. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp defamation trial. Some see this as a tipping point to how our society responds to gender violence. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Hilary Haldane, professor of anthropology at Quinnipiac University. Hillary is also the member, a member of the Connecticut Council on Sexual Misconduct Climate Assessments. Hillary, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Lucy, and thank you for holding this conversation. When we think about um, this particular trial and all of the, the points that have been raised by our previous guests, you know, there, there's also uh, the concern that, that this, um, there's a backlash against, a setback to the Me Too movement, and how would you respond to that? I would say that it has definitely a chilling effect. I think that one of the things that we've always struggled with in terms of as a society supporting survivors um, and their ability to come forward is there's just a genuine lack of belief in what they have to share. And I think as some of your other guests have mentioned today, particularly regarding this trial and the spectacle, really the circus of it, um, I think that that just made it that much more clear that we are not a culture that believes women. And I think that that's gonna make it that much harder for survivors like you know the one who joined us earlier 
um, to be able to come forward. And that's a real concern. You know, there may be uh, men who are listening who are also survivors of domestic abuse. They may feel silenced by this conversation. How would you respond to them? I think men who have experienced um, forms of intimate partner violence, sexual assault, um, certainly there's additional layers of um I would say cultural stereotypes and misperceptions that make it even harder for them to come forward. So if we already have a discourse that men are, you know, solely the perpetrators of violence and, you know, women are all the victims, then a man who has experienced some form of intimate partner violence or sexual assault is that much more, you know, kind of hesitant to come forward. Also, there's the you know, misogyny works on men too, insofar as they don't want to be seen as victims or as weak or anything that's stereotypically feminine that's seen as negative in our culture. So a man who has experienced this type of harm, um, particularly if it's perpetrated by a woman or a, or a man partner, um, I think it's even that much harder for them to come forward. Can we talk about more about the misogyny that was on display, even in the way, uh, you know, Johnny Depp, talked about his ex-wife to friends, you know, all this evidence about texts mm -hmm. where he fantasized about murdering his ex-wife. He disparaged her body. And then uh, we talked with uh, Shri about all of the disinformation, the memes that, that popped up on TikTok, uh, uh, the mocking of her crying at the trial. I mean, this is all, it's really disturbing. And like I said, some of the stuff that was shared, we can't even say it on the air. Right. I think that we have to look at our society and ask why we find the humiliation, the harm done to women as entertainment. I think that the degree of gender antagonism that we have in our culture is at the root of so much of the spectacle that we saw. So to me, the herd depth trial is just an example of a larger cultural problem that we have where we find women being embarrassed, um, harm to women being something that's worthy of entertainment. And if you just look at our movies, our television, our music, we celebrate harm done to women. Um, and I think that that's, and men are rewarded for it. So I'll just use a quick example of someone like Piers Morgan, who's a you know media personality, and how much he gets... Um, kind of, you know, respect or support for the way that he mocks Meghan Markle. And the fact that, you know, that's gendered and it's racialized. You know, so he's mocking a Black woman. He's putting down a Black woman. And he gets valorized for that. So we have to ask ourselves deeply why we as a culture celebrate the humiliation of women. And that is deeply, deeply concerning. You know, I've mentioned the Me Too movement even earlier in the show, and for some it felt like, you know, this was an empowering time for women. But, you know, four years on, you know, are we moving backward? Why are we still having this conversation? I think that, you know, something that um, Shri said and you also followed up with in mentioning the O.J. Simpson trial. So when we think about Nicole Brown Simpson, you know, from 1994, she was also a victim of domestic violence. So here we are almost, you know, these all these decades later, and we're still seeing this kind of spectacle around victims of violence. And I do think that there has been progress on a legal front. So, for instance, the Violence Against Women Act, which was enacted initially in 1994, that was just reauthorized. So we can celebrate that. We can say, look, we have this law in place. 
um, all this money that's going to go towards services, and we should celebrate that reauthorization. But 172 Republican members of the House of Representatives voted against it. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is something that in 1994 garnered so much bipartisan support? Why in 2022 did we have so many Republican members of Congress vote against it? What What is it about a law that is trying to protect all survivors of violence, all forms of violence. So that includes men, it includes, you know, all people, children, adults. Why is it that a particular political party stands against it? I think that is that to me is deeply concerning too. And if you also look at at the end of this trial, when the verdicts were read, it was the GOP, it was the Twitter account for the House of um, the GOP in the House who tweeted out a photo of Jack Sparrow, of Johnny Depp's character in, in, in all the pirate movies. And so why were they celebrating that? So to me, it concerns me that people in power are a part of this culture of harm towards, particularly in this case, towards women. Do you feel that the people that were celebrating it were also, you know, in their way, um, you know, speaking out against what, you know, the, the, the term cancel culture and how men who were alleged to have harassed uh, women, you know, how they were canceled. Can you talk about that, Hillary? I think that we have to ask ourselves, are people who have been accused of this, people who have enacted these things and then been found responsible for them, are they really harmed long term? And so people want to hold up examples like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who's, you know, he's who's still, um, you know, who's been imprisoned and, and has been, you know, is still having court cases go forward in California. Um and say, well, look, people are held responsible. I mean, the New York Times in 2018 did a study of an investigative study of how many of the people who had been accused under, you know, quote unquote, Me Too, and 200 men um, in powerful positions had been found to have lost their jobs. But I want to ask four years later, where are those men? So I don't think that we're seeing people being held responsible. Perpetrators are not held responsible for the harm that they do to women. So I think the cancel culture you know, believers are the ones who use a few high profile cases, which do not apply to the vast majority of perpetrators who continue to do harm to children, to men and to women in our culture. You know, getting back to another question I raised about, you know, how this will impact survivors of abuse if they speak out. Uh, well, there's the threat of a libel suit, but also that, again, that they will not be believed. I mentioned you're a member of the Connecticut Council on Sexual Misconduct Climate Assessments. I believe that relates to um, college campuses. You know, are you concerned about the implications here for, for students who are afraid to come forward? Absolutely. Um, it's already been hard enough for people to come forward. I think as our survivors shared, as Megan talked about, um, I think as Sri mentioned, just in terms of the what has technology has allowed to do to create a culture of shame and fear. But it's always been hard for students to come forward. I will say I want to give credit to, you know, the state of Connecticut in establishing um, this council when they passed HB 6374. It received bipartisan support. So our state, I think, is seeing that it's better to educate and try to eradicate harm um, than take sides, quote unquote. I do worry that um, students will see this and say, I, it's already humiliating enough. They don't want to come forward and tell their story. When Megan was talking about trauma, it is re-traumatizing to have to come forward and tell your story. Mm-hmm. But if you are getting the message that you're going to be re-traumatized in telling your story, but no one will believe you, and not only that, you will be mocked and made fun of, 
why would any survivor come forward? I will right. say that my hope is with the with the climate assessments, which I think are a wonderful thing that our state has done, is that it will serve as a tool of education. So one of the things that Megan and Shri both touched on was the fact that these aren't just lawyers mm -hmm. or judges who need to be educated. These are juries, and juries come from our culture. Juries right. come from our members of society. And Hillary, and we're so going to have to. We'll have to leave it there, unfortunately, but we'd okay. love to have you come back. Professor of Anthropology at Quinnipiac University, also Sri Srinivasan, professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatra Srinivasan. Here's a way you can support Connecticut Public. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.